Hello, fellow do-gooders and friends. I'm your host, Karina Belizzi, an activist and cause marketer who's passionate about social impact and sustainability. Today, we have a real treat in store for you as we connect with a thought leader, a mover, and a shaker in the world of social action and sustainability. She's worked with the WHO and the UN to create real solutions. Stay tuned. Welcome to Care More, Be Better, a podcast for people like you who care about the social impact of conscious companies and everyday heroes. Hear inspiring stories from those who put people and planet before profit and personal gain. You'll learn how you can make a difference, vote with your dollars, and get involved today. Here's your host, Karina Belizzi. Today, I'm joined by a lovely human I met in a sustainability room on Clubhouse of all places, Diane Dane. Now, she is a passionate and really thought-provoking individual who cares about building social and technology innovation ecosystems so that we can create a healthier world. Diane is a thought leader who was on the WHO innovation team and the founding team that created the United Nations Technology Innovations Lab, also known as UNTIL. She serves as a lead for the United Nations Reboot Accelerator, helping thousands of global youth to create sustainable climate action solutions. Presently, she serves as Quiet Mark's Chief Innovation Officer. Diane, it's a sincere gift to have you here with us today. Thank you so much. It's my pleasure to be here. And I really appreciate the opportunity to speak to someone like yourself who has such a broad outreach and perspective on this topic. So thank you. Well, thank you for being here. And as we commence today's conversation, I'd like to know more about you and what made you pursue this line of work. What what motivated you to pursue this aspirational work around sustainability? Well, I mean, I think it comes from a personal level for me. On a personal level, I was abandoned as a baby and oh, wow. left with the Salvation Army Hospital and then went into the L.A. County foster care system, which is our largest system in the country, as far as I know, still, and then adopted into a family that cared and gave me an education. And I was able to really have an amazing life because of people that cared enough about things that didn't necessarily impact their life, but cared for people, planet subjects that to me are the heart of sustainability, which is it's a people focused initiative and anything that we're creating, whether it harm or good, it's because we're doing it in force and in multiples. So that's really where my initial passion came from. And then as I was raising my children, I've got a long history now, a little bit of a history of experience with youth and children and raising them. And I began to put the pieces together on how important it is to really embed motivation for sustainability and for compassion deeply within our youth. And really, that's where my passion for this subject came from. Well, that's so interesting. So in an earlier episode with another individual, I also happened to meet on Clubhouse, Godfrey Coker. He was an adopted refugee from Sierra Leone. He's also working with youth to create more impact. And he's also connected to different technologies to do so. So it's like a very interesting, almost (laughs) (laughs) lateral story. I had no idea that you had been adopted and experienced some of those things too. So it's just kind of an incredible, gosh, it just says so much about the power that a parent has 
to guide their child as they are growing. And if you give them that sense that they can really make a difference themselves too, leading by example, you never know where they'll go and where they'll end up, but it's bound to be something you'd be proud of. And I'm betting they are of you too. Oh, thank you. Um, It is the most important job that I've ever done. And I consider everything after that a bonus. (laughs) Really, I mean, to raise successful humans that are going to walk the earth and care about others and actually want to make the earth a better place is really the most important thing we can do because it extends our lives. I always talk to youth about partner with a mentor and mentors actually take them seriously. So you can extend your life and way of giving innovation and impact in the world with the younger generation. So it really is a combined effort. Oh, I totally agree. Now, I understand you also serve as the chief innovation officer and advisory board member to the World Humanitarian Forum, and that you're currently working to create a healthier, more equitable post-COVID world. So can you talk about that project? We are. Well, we're the largest multilateral forum in the world that brings together stakeholders from government, from different agencies, the private sector to talk about how we all work together. And I'm on their advisory board. I focus on innovation. We believe in building back better, building back forward in a more forward progressive way. So right now we really hold space for everyone to convene and discuss how we can do this. I think we're in the middle of, from my personal perspective, we are sort of in the eye of a hurricane a little bit right now. Mm And we're trying to decide which way to go. I don't know about you, but I find a lot of people are trying to figure out which way do we go, which is going to have the most impact. We all know that it's a massive emergency, it's a massive call to action, but there's so much confusion out there. We all need to come together and start pushing in the same direction and decide what that direction is (laughs) in consultation with the planet, with the stakeholders and voices that have been marginalized. So that's really the space where we have the opportunity to do that and to speak to leadership in that forum. Well, there you mentioned the world essentially as a stakeholder in that conversation. And so I wonder how you work that in, how you build in this sense that the world is a stakeholder when you're talking to executives at a variety of different companies. Well, that is a really interesting point because... I don't know if you've read the Dasgupta report that the UK government recently put out in conjunction leading up to COP26. No, I haven't. So they pointed out that nature is really a blind spot in our economics of recovery. And absolutely so interesting. It's absent from the accounting systems that govern and it's ignored by economic decision makers. Mm -hmm. So it's calling for a reconstruction of economics to include nature as a factor and to rebalance the demands on nature as a resource with its capacity to supply them. So in other words, we're just extracting, we're constantly extracting, we're taking it for free because we can, right? Because that's what we've traditionally done. It's an unpaid resource Mm -hmm. that we can turn into a GDP, but there's a sinkhole that we're not compensating nature as a value and as there's an economic sinkhole. I think it's a very interesting paradigm between, for instance, women and men who are unpaid caregivers to our families, to our children. We give and give and give and give and give. And the earth is a feminine entity, does the same thing. 
it's not compensated. It doesn't factor into a GDP. So therefore, there's a bit of a sinkhole there. And we tend to just take it for granted. We tend to neglect it. But it's really a massively important part of what makes our lives sustainable. And the indigenous populations know this so well. They plan for seven generations ahead. Even if they could, let's say, adjust. There's a story that UNFCCC related to me, and I don't remember which tribe it was, so I'm not, or which country it was, but it was the indigenous population of a country. I'm not going to quote it because I would get it wrong. Catch of fish was decreasing because of their traditional way of catching those fish. And the government leaders came to them and said, if you make the holes in your net smaller, you will be able to catch more fish and be able to sustain yourselves. And they said, but if we do that, it will impact maybe seven generations down and they won't be able to have as much if we overconsume. So the indigenous populations know, do not overconsume. We are, as a society right now, we are overconsuming. We are throwing away. We have a paper cup society where we just <laughs> disposable, right? Yep. So as society, we've disengaged from the fact that we are a part of nature, that everything we touch came from nature, that we are indigenous to the planet, to nature. We've forgotten those values. We've forgotten how to honor and give back before we take. Yeah. I mean, this is something you and I spoke about briefly before, too. It's like we are thinking in some ways that the same problems that got us here will somehow help us escape the challenges that we're presently seeing. Like, oh, well, instead of using that plastic or paper cup, I'm just not going to use it. But we also have this huge kind of carbon sequestration problem where there's already so much in the atmosphere that global warming will continue regardless unless we are able to draw that down and ultimately change how we're doing things from a business perspective and from a global community perspective by taking the earth into consideration, by understanding that these are finite resources, not infinite. So we can come from an idea of abundance, but without really looking at the earth like, oh, well, I can just go ahead and blow this mountain up and take the copper out of it without worrying about what it's going to do to the local environment. So making considerable changes in how we approach the earth and these finite resources will only serve to help us getting out of a space where we replace our cell phones every year and a half. That will help too. (laughs) Yeah, I know. Or the companies that kind of shut your phone down every time they update and you haven't bought a new phone. I mean, I think we're forced into this economy of consumption. It's a challenge. It's the challenge to step out of that and realize that we're surrounded by an abundance of this most beautiful, precious resource of love and nature and care and compassion. It's there. The feminine principles of what make us human and make us connected as a species and as a race, we can do phenomenal, amazing, miraculous things in a short space of time, but it is going to take all of us realizing this folding hands together enough of the divisions right agreed i'm tired of it and it's not getting us anywhere (laughs) i think a lot of us are so i think it's important though to also draw a distinction for people because i think the lay public they hear feminine they hear masculine and they have ideas of what these things mean and one gets defined as girly and the other gets defined as brutish and that's not what we're talking about here right 
This is beyond the gender perspective. It's something deeper. So let's talk about the feminine principles or the feminine perspective as it relates to Mother Earth and resource use. It's a Jungian principle. It's a psychology principle that they've studied forever. It's the male principles, they call it, or the male attributes of conquer, extract, compete. And then the feminine principles or I can't remember what you just called it. I don't know. Characteristics. They're not in men or women. They're genderless, which is a beautiful thing. And they're compassion and connection. So basically the masculine principles are doing, they're very action oriented. Mm -hmm. The feminine principles are being, being quiet, caring, very powerful, but we've just not prioritized them. And those feminine principles are found in men and women. I mean, it's completely what I love about the gender fluidity that we now have. It's not square defined, like that's masculine. The feminine principles are fluid. And that's what we've seen the youth demand. They've really come forward and helped us redefine what gender is or what is not, or maybe it's not even definable at all, but it doesn't matter. The point is we've extended the boundaries. We've made things more fluid and more flowing and to encompass everyone and bring everyone to the table. And we all become a community. That is the feminine principles of compassion and care and lifting and loving. And it is all centered on love, being the presence of love. And it's not a gender, it's a way of being. Well, I love that. I just think it's important to be clear that we're not talking about feminism here. We're talking about something that is more fundamental to every person. As my husband will often say to me, it's not a competition. So I tend to go towards some of those more male ideals sometimes. (laughs) Very goal-driven, very much like want to climb that mountain and conquer whatever it is I'm trying to accomplish. But that doesn't make me a man, right? It's just one of the masculine tendencies within humanity. And so we're talking about the more feminine side of that and thinking about resources differently, and ultimately building a different future. Now, it will take women in leadership to help champion this. So I do. (laughs) Let's talk about that. Like, where do you see us going? (laughs) (laughs) Because it is a challenge, right? Because women, when they get into leadership, they're very aligned with their masculine, because they have to be to get there, right? This is a sweeping generalization. But quite often, we have had to set aside our intuition, our softer side, because we have to operate in this masculine world that we have designed. The feminine has not designed it, but the forces that be through the generations have designed, it's been a man's world. I mean, all the city planning has been designed for men. All the psychological tests that were done on lab animals were on male animals. I mean, it goes back as far as that. So It's very interesting, but I do believe that there's a strong power in women and in men, and we're seeing this more and more when they align with the feminine of being, taking a moment, taking a deep breath, focusing on who's in the room, who's missing in the room, what voices are we not including, how can we bring in everyone to the table so that everyone's voices are heard and listened to and incorporated into the solutions that we're building. Many of the people that are suffering through climate change Our women, our indigenous populations, our children, youth, they're the ones that are going to know the solutions because they're suffering the problems. And quite often they're brilliant and they have amazing 
socially contextual solutions that we would have never thought of unless we had suffered and gone through those similar problems. Yet we don't tend to invest in them. We don't invest enough in indigenous populations in the solutions that we can build. We have all the technology in the world to now go to Mars and yet we can't invest in saving our planet through investing in indigenous populations or women's solutions. I mean, some of these things are things we've known ever since Muhammad Yunus incorporated microfinance with women and invested in them and pioneered that and won the Nobel Peace Prize for that because women not only educate themselves, run businesses, pay back loans, but they educate their children and lift their communities and pay it back. So, I mean, this is not new information to us. We can invest in women and it's a multiplier effect. So I'm curious to know your perspective on what it will take to turn around the climate machine and maybe the business machine as it relates to the climate. I'm sure you've put a lot of thought into this and there are several initiatives, I think, that are presently underway. I mean, there's a million different ideas out there on how we can solve climate problems. But if we're all running in different directions, are we going to be able to solve that? So what do you think the most promising solutions are presently? Well, I think it's going to take small groups where we, again, have connected to each other and deeply feel that we are connected to something that's beyond ourselves. So I think quite often we don't have this deep connection or don't come from a feeling place. We come from a thinking place. Once we realize we have connection with people and we become these communities, whether that's online, whether that's a group that you belong to that you're passionate about, then we join hands with other communities and we push in the same direction because it's going to take such a massive effort to move the needle. So I think when it comes to behavioral change, that's what I would say, priority number one, we don't need another nonprofit. We don't need another NGO what we do need is to push in the same direction. When those directions are defined as the best solution, and we can figure this out, when those are defined, then join hands and let's push in the same direction. That's to me is the best solution of all. I see way too many silos and echo chambers and a new solution popping up every day, like you just pointed out. So who do you listen to? And then we have a plethora of misinformation, infodemic, went hand in hand with the pandemic, which increased our divisions. Mm -hmm. So it's a real challenge right now, but I have hope in humanity. I have so much hope. We have technology that can, again, I mean, get us to the moon, but it can also save ourselves and save the planet. But we do need to design our way out of this in a different way than we designed our way into it. Right. Well, I think that pairs nicely with a recent episode that my listeners will have likely heard, in which I interview David Johnson, and we talk about his plan for ultimately working to build a green print where small groups of people can connect and collaborate and push for change with regard to climate. So I encourage people to go back and listen to that episode. Now, one of the things I've been looking at is this concept that soil can support sequestration of CO2 from the atmosphere and possibly even be like a driving force in regenerating our climate and our environment, reducing temperatures, getting back to more the place we were 
possibly even like the 60s or 70s before a lot of this damage was done. So what are your thoughts on that approach, ultimately changing how we farm and how we use our soils? Well, I'm not an expert in this field, but I agree with the science that says that we can do that. I just want to caution people to not disconnect from personal responsibility. Because yes, we do have great solutions out there, but it's also a very personal responsibility to taking this seriously and to be changing your behavior because so much of this is behavior change as well. And so I love this idea that we have the science that can actually analyze this, that we can draw down carbon, that we can sequester it. It's amazing. It's one of many solutions that are going to come to us in the future because that's the direction we're headed. And our science is such that we can get there. Yeah. And they can work in tandem. Like you can use less plastic cups and you can plant a tree and you can drive less and you can put solar. (laughs) (laughs) Exactly. It's an and, and, and. We are at the greatest moment for humanity in the history of the world. I mean, there's nothing we can't do. Honestly, there is nothing we can't do. We just have to take all of our amazing progress and understand that we are connected to a planet, to a mother earth. As much as you love your mother or whoever raised you, or if you are a parent, as much as you love that child, that's how much we need to love our planet. And if we all did, we wouldn't have a climate change issue. With a few technology, like you just pointed out, new technologies, we could change this quickly. But we've lost 70% of our animals, birds, different species since 1970. Hmm. And the people that steward 80% of our biodiversity are the indigenous populations. And so unless we shift, unless we have a powerful shift towards changing our thought processes, we are going to continue down this road of destruction. Yeah, I would tend to agree with you. And it doesn't have to feel gigantic. So I'm curious if you could share a few of the things that you do in your daily life to ensure that you live a little greener and leave less of a carbon footprint? Oh, gosh. I try to eat very little meat or as much a vegetarian lifestyle as I can. I'm not going to say that I'm perfect at that, but I don't think you need to let the perfect be the enemy of good, as that old saying goes. I think if we did just 50% better, we'd all be so much further ahead. So whether it's eating less meat, that our diets have a huge impact on climate change and global warming. Well, and on our personal health, like, let's not forget that one, you know? Exactly. And take public transit, take a bike. I don't know where your podcast goes exactly, but Americans aren't traditionally very much known for prioritizing biking over taking our vehicles everywhere. But if possible, find another mode of transportation. It's simple things. It's not complicated things. Wash your dishes, wash them by hand instead of buying paper cups and plates. And (laughs) yeah, or in our case, we bought this newfangled dishwasher that only uses something like two gallons of water to wash an entire load and it's energy saver. So at the same time, it doesn't use a ton of energy. So we're protecting our water use. And that's really important here in California, because guess what? Water tables aren't where they once were, and we aren't getting as much rain. So without as much rain, you don't have enough to draw from, and you end up borrowing from other rivers, like the Colorado River or something like that. So we have to be mindful of that. And I therefore also have rain barrels. My husband was just repairing them this morning in preparation for storms, which will hopefully come. 
to make sure that we can capture that and then water our fruit trees with that. Or even just putting a bucket in the shower or turning off the water in the shower when we're soaping up and things like that. So there are many little changes we can make to live a little bit more clean and a little bit healthier. I also make the effort of when I do errands, kind of plotting it out and making sure I go kind of in a loop and hit everything at once as opposed to six different trips during the week. So little changes like that can make a big difference with time. My car certainly has less miles on it as a result too. So there's that. That's right. And we all could simplify for our own internal well-being, our own green deal. It's an inner green deal, right? We need to treat ourselves better. We need to focus on quieting our minds and trying to simplify is not a bad thing. It goes hand in hand with helping the planet because we need to reconnect to the planet. We need to reconnect and understand that we're a product and we're a child and a creature, just like every other creature on this planet. That's what's so important. Right. I mean, I've gone as far as with my pets, right? I rehomed somebody else's pets into my home. And then I never thought I'd say this, but I breed roaches because I feed them to my dragon. I have a bearded dragon, right? And so that means that I'm not paying for shipping for insects to come from elsewhere. I'm not receiving them in a box. They aren't arriving dead because it got too hot or too cold. So I'm taking care of it within the walls of my home. I feed them scraps from my kitchen, like the ends of carrots and stuff like that. And so it's a really kind of self-sustaining ecosystem. And the thing that this little box that I keep them in has taught me about is also ecosystems with insects, because then I have two other species of (laughs) insects in there that help to keep it clean. And it's kind of like this ongoing experiment that I'm running with my six-year-old child, keeping him kind of in the know of what it takes to keep healthy critters of any number of sorts. Yeah, permaculture. You got a little biodiversity. (laughs) Yeah, I do. I mean, I did at one time do vermicomposting and I tired of that. It was a lot more work than I wanted it to be. And so I now compost using a traditional composter outdoors, but the bottom of it touches the soil. And so that means that I actually get the benefits of vermicomposting because insects come in and help to eat all the plant matter and create really rich soil. And so in my gardening efforts at home, we're using that because it's all organic produce anyway. And it means that I've got rich soil. There is black gold in there, among other things, I'm sure. And our fruit trees are really producing nice fruit, which mostly the squirrels eat, if I'm being perfectly honest. And I grow strawberries and different herbs. And we're really just kind of trying to live a little bit of a self-sustaining lifestyle in that way, too. That's so smart because we've become so disconnected. I realized one day I was in New York City and I was drinking a cup of coffee and I had a moment to just, I was waiting for something to begin. And I looked at the cup and I thought, I wonder what did it take for this cup to get into my hands with this coffee in it? And I visualized the farmer growing it, the transportation that was needed. If you actually think about it, we're so disconnected by the time food or anything gets to us that we wouldn't know how to do it ourselves. And so I think that you're really smart. We all could simplify. We all could learn more about how to produce food on our own or how to just be more self-sustaining. And the youth, I think some of our youth actually have been really great at like re-emphasizing that. They, there's a trend in that direction. Right. I think it's beautiful. It's almost like it missed our generation somehow, but the, the grandparents, they're channeling their grandparents or their great-grandparents and 
it's a beautiful thing. Yeah, well, I live in Santa Cruz County. And so a lot of people have backyard chickens. In fact, yesterday, I went to have a girlfriend cut my hair at her salon. And she showed up as a gift to me with a dozen eggs from her backyard. And so to me, that was a lovely gift. (laughs) Oh, that's wonderful. I love that. I was the president of an organization that was founded by Eleanor Roosevelt. And it was designed to honor women, mothers in particular, created during the Depression. Because during the Depression, everything shut down. There was no money for social services. There was no money for jobs. And the women in these communities all across America literally held their families together and whole communities. They became the social services and the social network. So we've been in really bad places before, and we know what the answers are. It's care for each other. Yeah, and it really is. I was talking about this in an earlier episode, too, with Stephanie Safarian. She has a podcast called Sustainable Minimalism and wrote a book by the same topic, right? And she was talking about the fact that you can borrow stuff from your neighbors. Like, does everybody on your street need to have a dehydrator to keep food for longer? No, but you could borrow it from your neighbor. Does everyone need to have your pressure cooker? Probably not. So even just borrowing goods and returning them and making use of them and then looking to how you purchase certain items. Does it need to be new? Can you go on a share collective or a Facebook group in your neighborhood and get some new toys for your kids, which is something I do, especially if it's plastic. I try not to buy plastic and give something a second life that otherwise might end up in the trash. And I just think living that way, a little bit more community-based is something that will be healthier for everybody all around the globe as we continue to grow our populace and really our technologies. (laughs) Absolutely. I mean, disruption has become such a buzzword, but we really disrupting our own habits, like you just said, where we do our own buying habits. I think that's the key, right? We can have a sharing economy. We don't have to have, everyone's looking for the higher paying jobs, right? If they bump up their lifestyle, but we can also go the opposite direction and decrease expenses. You know, we don't, to have a higher lifestyle, you also can, do more sharing and decrease the spending that we're doing, save the planet at the same time. So, right. How often do you need to go shopping for clothes and buying something on Amazon? (laughs) Right. And during the lockdown, I mean, I don't think I bought anything for so long and I'm sure most people didn't, they didn't buy clothes or shoes. I mean, all of a sudden nothing was important besides your own health and making sure your family was okay and your friends and neighbors And now we're out of lockdown and we're sort of going back into the same habits, which is really, it's interesting because I think a lot of us learned quite really, really huge lessons during lockdown, good and bad and everything in between. But we seem to be reverting back to our busy lifestyles that we had. So hopefully we'll continue some of our good lessons. I think we'll keep some of the gems. I certainly am not buying as much clothes, but the running shoes I've, kept those up. (laughs) Definitely going through just as many of those. They only last so long and then I have to get new pair. But I also take them to a local shop running revolution in Santa Cruz. They actually take all of the shoes and they use them to build high school tracks and college tracks. So those are rubberized tracks around the United States. And so I can donate my shoes there, they collect them and they send them to another company that does that, which I think is a great second use for sneakers. Absolutely. And it's impressive that you've been going through so many sneakers. I wish I could say the same. 
<laughs> so it's my exercise, right? Because the gym will close and everything else too. So go out for a run, spend some time in nature and just oh, enjoy life that way. So that's right. Now, as we prepare to wrap up, I would love to ask you a final question. Is there something that I haven't asked that you wish I had? It can be a stumper, can't it? <laughs> <laughs> that is a stumper. I mean, I would love to know what you think. I touched on that indigenous populations are focused on seven generations in advance. You know, what do you think our world will be like in seven generations? And what is there, if anything, is there any one action you would take for those? So I think that that's seven generations down. I wish it would be asked this question. I guess this is my one question that I would want to be asked. What impact or what ancestor do you want to be? Hmm. So if we're thinking about seven generations out, I don't even know how many that is. But <laughs> how many years, right? You're thinking, yeah, I don't know how many years that is, but I think um, that's like in between like 140 and 175, something like that. Yeah. But I think that's the one question I would love to think about it. So I'm not saying I want to be asked it right this second, but I would like to ask everyone listening, what kind of an ancestor do you want to be? Because one thing for sure is they're going to be looking back at this moment in time during the pandemic, recovery from the pandemic climate change as a perfect storm. What did my ancestors do? How did they survive it? Right. And what could they have done differently and better? Exactly. Yeah. The thing I think about often is how technology can be an incredible solution and also a problem. So take, for instance, electric cars, right? We build them to run for, I don't know, up to, I think about 10 years and the batteries need to be replaced. And they use a lot of minerals and resources in those batteries. And then you wonder, is that the right way to build an electrical car? And have we thought about enough of what the repercussions down the road could be by developing this new technology? And sometimes I think that's the piece that's missing that I wish we would do a little differently is really think through what the repercussions will be of the actions we're taking to solve problems in the now and then kind of address how we think about them from a solutions perspective with that in mind. Because I think often when we see a new technology and the capability in front of us, we're amazed by it and we become a little bit blind to what the repercussions of that technology might be. That's, that's so true. For instance, drilling into Greenland, into the permafrost of Greenland to get the minerals needed for the electric cars batteries. I mean, that's a little scary. It's a little yeah, scary. But just a little. <laughs> I mean, but what is the ramification of that? And everything in between these solutions that we're going to be deciding this year, because we're so urgently needing change. So I'm with you. Yeah. So one of the things I'm going to be looking at more closely is soil health and future episodes. And I remember in my undergrad, Joseph Campbell wrote a smattering of books all about the connections of technology over time and how humans have adapted and grown over the years. And he wrote at length about the invention of the plow and how it changed everything for humanity. And it really did. It enabled us to change our environment in such a way that we could now have staple foods year round and we could plan for bigger communities. We could come together instead of living in smaller tribes in a larger environment because we now had enough food to sustain a larger group, right? 
And so this whole advent of agriculture as a new technology really did change things. But what did it also do? Over farming an area can really create problems for the environment. And as I'm now learning, really just tilling that soil over and over and over releases more carbon into the atmosphere and essentially turns that rich soil into dirt. And so if we are going to build solutions that will support our global populace for generations to come, then we really need to change our thinking as we produce new technologies. Like what are the repercussions going to be? Am I keeping nature in mind? And will nature help me solve this problem in a different way so that I'm not creating a new problem for her? Yeah, so true. You're so spot on. So anyway, that's where my head's been. It's the rabbit hole I'm digging into next. (laughs) And I look forward to talking to more experts so we can discuss that deeper. Now, is there a thought that you'd like to leave our audience with today? Just don't disconnect. Just continue to care. Continue to care more. Be better. Just like the title of your podcast, which I think is absolutely perfect. And don't get discouraged. Don't get depressed. Don't put your head in the sand and say it's not worth it because it is. And this is something that's possible. I have a tremendous amount of hope. I led the Reboot Accelerator at the UN and saw amazing solutions out of youth that would boggle your mind and they just will absolutely change the world and quickly. So we can do this. We can do this. We can do this. Thank you, Diane, for all you do. Now, if our listeners want to get in touch with you directly, how should they do it? Where do they go? They need to get more of Diane. They want to hear more about the things that you're doing and these incredible projects with the UN, the WHO, and more. You can email me. You can find me at dianedane.com or you can email me at onedianedane at gmail.com. And Diane with two N's, I should say, just because I'm so used to spelling it differently. So dianedane.com. I will be sure to include that link in show notes and also a connection to your LinkedIn page, which is quite impressive, I must say. Oh, thank you. Yeah, you can reach me anywhere. I'm happy to connect. And if there's something that I can help with, I'm generally, if I'm able to, I will help. (laughs) I love that, Diane. Thank you so much. Thank you so much for the opportunity. It was a great chance to speak with someone who's actually, you're doing more than just talking the talk. You're actually doing something about it, which is really great. So hats off to you. And I look forward to following your progress on this podcast. Oh, thank you so much. All in an effort to inspire more people, right? And that's what we're doing together. That's right. Thank you so much. Have a good week, everyone, where you're at. Now, listeners, I'd like to invite you to act. It doesn't have to be huge. It could be as simple as sharing this podcast with people in your community. To find suggestions, you can always visit caremorebebetter.com. There we have an action page with companies and causes we encourage you to support. And thank you for being a part of this pod and this community. It really is an important group of people. Hopefully together we can push for more change. You can follow us on social spaces at Care More Be Better or just send me an email to hello at caremorebebetter.com. I want to hear from you. Thank you now and always for being a part of this pod and this community because together we really can do so much more. Thanks for listening to Care More Be Better, a podcast for social good. To make sure you never miss an episode, subscribe, rate, and review wherever you listen to podcasts. 
and share with your friends to help us reach more people and spread more social good. 